Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 24th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Garda Representative Association is holding its annual conference in Kerry. Yesterday, rank-and-file Garda were thanked for their service by the Minister for Justice. Emphasise my appreciation for the work that you do, the work that you have done in particular in the last 18 months, but the work that I know you will get up tomorrow Helen McEntee heard from the GRA about some of the difficulties that Gardaí face in the line of duty. Over the past five years, we have seen over 4,200 attacks on Gardaí while on duty. A terrible reality of the hazards Gardaí face every day and one that is getting worse year on year. With the number of 700 assaults in 2016 rising to 1,096 last year an increase of 57% in that time. And things didn't get any better during the pandemic and at times under lockdown. Our members have had to deal with over 45,000 public order offences nationwide during the pandemic which gives a flavour of the many challenges we have faced over the past 18 months. Helen McEntee recognised some of uh, those uh, difficulties uh, that the GRA President Frank Thornton was highlighting, but the Minister says she's confident things will improve. This has been a particularly challenging time for us uh, and will likely to remain so for time for some time to come. Um, but I am absolutely confident with the support of Angarda Shiakana and that we will be able to weather this storm. Gardaí, though, are calling for something more substantive than that. We have long been calling for mandatory sentencing for those convicted of assaulting Gardaí and other frontline emergency workers. The GRA president called on the minister to support legislation in that respect that is being brought forward by Senator Robbie Gallagher. Frank Thornton also told the minister that Gardaí are used to criticism and negative of comments being made about them. But there's something fundamentally wrong when the Police Authority Chair and Commissioner of Angarashi Connor are making statements that damage the reputation of our members and undermine public confidence in advance of facts being established or reports being issued. The President of the GRA told delegates that that very strong criticism is rooted in a failure to apply fundamental policing policies for investigating individuals before making a determination against them. One of the fundamental principles that will guide any police officer is the need to establish facts 
and this association and our members will look forward to reading the report of Derek Penman because we have confidence in the fact that we'll vindicate our members that we represent and our association's measured response. Let's speak to the Vice President of uh, the GRA, Brendan O'Connor now, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, That was a very unusual statement uh, from your President yesterday by normal times, uh, but there is a a lot of anxiety indeed. I think there were an awful lot of emotional contributions yesterday uh, at your conference and indeed uh, one of the motions uh, that uh, was carried by members was in relation to this. You're calling for a full-scale review of uh, the protocols uh, when it comes to suspensions. That's correct, Michael, and we believe that uh, the, the use of suspension as a tool that managers are using in relation to managing the force um, has really increased in recent years, and we believe that there's uh, a lack of checks and balances and a lack of transparency. We understand the need for the provision to be there, but the way it's applied in this jurisdiction actually is different from other international practice. It's not re- it's not subject to well, it is subject to review, but there's very little feedback. There's very little information provided to the members who are affected, and the, the, the process can drag on. We have members who have been suspended for uh, years and years and years, and then found that there's a, that they haven't actually breached any uh, provision under the discipline regulations or a criminal act. So we've just are looking for a bit of transparency, a bit of fairness. Just a few of the basic principles underpin most um, legal processes that don't apply in this case. Okay, um, that's an unusual allegation coming from the Gardaí about how Gardaí are being treated, as I said at the outset. Uh, it sounds like a, a, a dreadful dispute between you and senior management. Uh, I wouldn't say a dreadful dispute, but it has dreadful implications for the members concerned, you know, because... Uh, if, if you're suspended from duty in the Gardaí Shikon, it comes with a certain stigma, uh, and it's affecting members' mental health, it's affecting their well-being, and it's very hard to recover. And as I say, we do acknowledge the circumstances and where it needs to be uh, used, but the figures speak for themselves. Mm. The way it's been used and the number of times it's been used, and we believe there are sometimes other alternatives where, where the allegations are, are not for, don't warrant that action, and maybe you know people can be redeployed to, to roles where they're not dealing with the public. Or, you know, suspension was something that was used uh, in extreme cases in the past, where there was uh, a possibility of something like interfering with the or coming into contact with the people that were part of the process. But it's just been used as a rather blunt instrument now, and we believe that it really is a concept that our members have been treated just as guilty to the proof of innocence, and even when they're disproved of innocence, sometimes there's a delay in getting back to work. Um, maybe it's worse than uh, a dreadful dispute. Uh, your president described it as nothing but horrific, uh, harrowing day in, day out. Uh, one of uh, your delegates, Carl uh, O'Gorman, uh, said humanity died with Angorda Shia with the suspension of uh, some of his uh, colleagues. Uh, uh, and uh, another member of uh, the force uh, spoke about uh, people coming back from sick leave before they were suspended and nothing happening over the course of a year despite the fact that there wasn't one shred of evidence put to them. Colleagues have been stripped of their jobs, stripped of their dignity, left ostracised within the force. What happened to innocent until proven guilty? Uh, this, cri- this criticism couldn't be much stronger, could it? Well, I don't think so, but I think it is. The comments reflected the, the emotion involved and the effect that it's having. It was, it was very, actually, it was very, to see the emotion and the raw emotion of the members from Limit are particularly affected, but it's just at this current moment, um, as I was speaking from the heart of it, uh, people just stood alongside and walked for three years, and it was just, it was very obvious that it, 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 it was hard for our comments that were really coming out, and, and 
it's just a huge groundswell of feeling amongst the members, particularly in Limerick at the moment. Mm. Uh, what did the minister say, or did the minister have anything to say in response to that criticism? No, the minister mm. hasn't, hasn't touched on that subject, so uh, as I say, we haven't had any feedback from the authorities in relation to this, but we have been meeting them, of course, um, of course yeah. in, in the normal forums, and we've been putting that forward and looking for a view, and I think look at international practice, like in the UK, where it's subject to an ongoing review, there'll be feedback, the member will be explained, and advice of what's happening, and there's a, there's a level of oversight here that's lacking in the, in the system in this jurisdiction. Okay, the minister uh, was uh, full of uh, recognition uh, for how difficult a, a job it can be, and particularly through the pandemic, as we heard. I, I think a lot of us uh, were probably shocked to hear about the number of attacks uh, that take place on a regular basis against members of the force. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very concerning um, statistical trajectory for our members, and of course we find most of the statistics as an individual in many cases who's and subject to a vicious attack and, and, and suffers serious injuries on, on, on occasion. So it's certainly it, it's a phenomenon and it's growing and we believe that something needs to be done to try and overcome it or try to deal with it. And it's what we see that the most obvious thing to do would be to have a mandatory sentence in place that people would have, a, have, have that as a deterrent because it's the legislation as it stands and, and the sentences that are open to the judiciary don't seem to be having any effect and we see the ever-increasing um, numbers and as well as the, the personal impact that we're talking about. I mean, there's huge difficulty because of, we all know that you know guards are an important public service and people rely on the service. And when members are out sick and injured, you know that's 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 a gap in the front line and it's not filled. So you know, as an organisation, as a society, we're also suffering as a result of this phenomenon. So we think it should be given a degree of urgency. And not just Gardaí, uh, frontline no, no. emergency workers, uh, Gardaí, uh, those uh, who are working in the health service, the fire service, and so on. Yes, essentially, I suppose, look at anyone that's spoken for the emergency service or the blue light service, the serving communities, we believe that uh, in return for their service, it should be acknowledged that uh, the care is they often put themselves in, and that should be reflected in, in, in how people who visit violence upon them are dealt with. Mm. And what should the sanction be for somebody who assaults a frontline emergency worker? Well, we believe for any sort of, uh, as you see, it's a there should be a custodial element. Um, as I say, we're not specifically defining that, but that's up to the legislature and the judiciary. Maybe have to define where exactly that point is. But certainly, there should be an element of a custodial sense and that people should be deprived of their liberty if they attack a member of or any of our frontline colleagues. Okay, would we have enough prison space if that was the case? Well, I, I look at it, I don't. We, mm. we, we're not privy to that information, but um, I know there's a lot less people in custody in relation to the payment of fines has been changed this weekend, so I don't know if that capacity is there, but um, as I say, that is an issue for someone else to solve, but we, we want that to count there. Mm. You paint a, a picture, though, of it being a, a very regular occurrence uh, that Gardaí are assaulted on a, a regular basis, and if uh, those who assault them are to end up in custody, uh, that would obviously uh, require a, a lot more prison space, would it not? Well, look, that, that's going to mm. be an inevitable outcome, but I suppose if we're hoping for is that if that, if that sanction is there, it might actually reduce the number of people who are assaulted because mm. of the acting as a deterrent. And if that deterrent was in place, that the assaults wouldn't take place? Exactly, that there would certainly be a reduction in the numbers. Mm. Uh, speaking of a, a reduction in the numbers, uh, what is uh, the feeling amongst members about uh, the size of the force at the moment? Well, we, look, we would feel that uh, the force simply isn't enough, and 
we're about 700 behind where the government promised that we would be at the 2021. So, that's 700 less Gardaí across the country in every station, and we just need more resources. The guys that are there are under increasing pressure because, you know, um, investing in crime and the many functions we carry out are more resource intensive. And I suppose that um, you know, we all know what's happened in Jahal in recent years and just see what can happen in regional towns across the country that there's a demand on membership. We certainly, and we saw the focus on Dublin City Central in recent times, and we've heard from um, colleagues around the country yesterday. It just is a uh, uh, the Sunday the line is very stretched across the country, and, and the one thing we need is more people and more recruitment. Okay, and no doubt uh, you'll be asking for more support when you meet uh, again this morning. That's correct. Okay. We leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, the Vice President of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association, Brendan O'Connor. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Vera, who was uh, in touch with us uh, this morning about the Christmas lights in Dundalk. Lovely to see them, she says. Uh, but Bridge Street completely left out, no lights at all. Such a shame uh, for a town of its size. Even a Christmas tree at the St. Nicholas Church would have helped. The council has great income and should have plenty of money from the parking meters and whatever else, she says. Uh, would you give this a mention? Thank you, Vera, for your text to the programme. Uh, and thanks uh, to anybody who has been in touch with us early yet but uh, you're welcome to get in touch with us as we go through the morning. Now let's uh, talk about Covid again and as you know Drogheda is uh, the worst part of the country probably one of the worst parts in Europe given that there's one in 40 people in uh, the Drogheda urban local electoral area who have COVID and that's the number of people we know about uh, because uh, they've tested positive. Uh, That's one in 40. Uh, And as a result of that, there's obviously a rise in uh, the number of people who are looking for GP attention. Dara O'Neill, Professor Dara O'Neill is a GP at uh, the Clan Medical Practice in Drogheda and undoubtedly Dr O'Neill, you're seeing that in your practice. Hello, Dr. O'Neill. I'm saying I'm sure you're seeing that in your practice. Uh, yes, and in, in the last couple of weeks, there's definitely been a big rise in the number of people presenting with COVID and with COVID-related symptoms. Um, a lot of the time, they're young and unvaccinated, um, so vaccines aren't available to those under 12 as yet. Um, but also, uh, there's a, a proportion of the population who have chosen not to take the vaccine. Um, yet COVID is still lurking around and uh, they're the ones unfortunately who are running into difficulty. And it's predominantly um, the unvaccinated that you're seeing, is it? Uh, the difficulties we're having is with the unvaccinated because we have to take all precautions as if they had COVID when we see them, if they have got any sort of an illness because it is COVID till proven otherwise. Um, and I suppose the point here would be that um, the antigen tests are no substitute for the PCR. If you're sick, you need a PCR test by the HSE. Antigen tests are okay to monitor you being well, but Mm. not when you're sick. And what does that mean, when you're sick? I mean, does that include a tickle in the throat? That's the difficulty with (laughs) COVID. Uh, Many, many people, particularly those who have been fully vaccinated, are asymptomatic but carry it. Um, So if you've got a, a, a... the temperature in particular, fevers, shivers, aches, pains, like rigors is what we call that, um, stuffy, stuffiness in the head, and generally unwell, feeling like you've been hit by something. Um, that's 
most likely COVID. Sometimes people just have simple little cough. It has started out of nowhere. It's dry and annoying, uh, and that can be COVID as well. So it is quite an array of things. In children, it can be diarrhea and vomiting. But also in children at the moment, you've got all the other normal winter respiratory symptoms that they can have and the difficulties to try and tell the difference between mm. the two. To be sure uh, and the only way of doing that is uh, the PCR test and obviously there's a, a lot of people uh, who feel that they should get a, a test and aren't able to get a, a test it's next to impossible to get a, a test uh, is that uh, not in itself an indication of how bad things are because 207,000 people were tested last week alone And the positivity rate is 15% Well meaning that you know 15% of those have got it. Yeah, the waiting time is unfortunate, but having the test is is one thing. It's you need to do the same thing irrespective. It's isolate isolate reduce your number of contacts. If you're feeling sick tell people I'm not well, mm. please don't, you know, mix with me or uh, and children the same. And it has a huge impact on on parents of young children who are sent home from school and we do appreciate that. But really we we were looking for people to have a PCR test before we see them the uh, negative results, positive results if you have to see them uh, and they're sick uh, you have to gown up fully and it slows down our delivery in the day and also brings fear among um, primary healthcare physicians and, and nurses and we all have to worry of bringing it home to our own family but more importantly if, if, if we go down there aren't many people around to replace us and it's, it's a fully healthcare approach, it's primary care and secondary care working together to try and overcome this um, and the hospitals need the GPs in the in the area and the GPs need the hospitals to back them up. Now, there's 14 people on ventilators in the Lourdes, um, quite young ages. You, normally you don't see 30 and 40-year-olds on ventilators, but you have a number of them in the Lourdes on ventilators. They're unvaccinated and they're suffering with COVID or the effects of COVID. And it's, it's quite sad. Yeah, well, uh, it's very sad uh, and frightening uh, for all of us uh, because none of us want to be uh, amongst those statistics uh, or to pass it on to somebody else. Uh, and as you say, Professor O'Neill, uh, if uh, you're experiencing symptoms, you should get tested. Uh, does that uh, include those very mild symptoms, uh, as you were saying, um, a little bit of a cough type of thing, a tickle in the throat? It's very hard to tell, but, you know, if you're normally a well and healthy person, um, if you're fully vaccinated, the, uh, the chances are that if you get COVID, you'll have a milder format. Uh, the vaccine was never around to prevent you ever getting it. It just means that it won't have the serious effects on you in the majority of cases. But if you're fully vaccinated and you feel a little bit unwell, uh, then you should take precautions, get your PCR test. If you're not vaccinated and you have any form of illness, it's COVID till proven otherwise. That's okay. just uh, the rule that we're adopting. We're coming on uh, two years into this pandemic, a, a year and a half certainly at this stage. Uh, how bad is it now uh, relative uh, to what you've experienced up to this point? Well, the beginning of it was quite scary because we didn't know anything about it. We were all seeing those pictures from China coming our way and from Italy and from Spain where it was devastating effects. We were lucky in Ireland in that the government adopted early approach. But 18, 20 months later on, we're still learning a lot about this illness. We're still trying our best with vaccines and what we have. But it's all got to do with the number of contacts, social contacts, wearing of masks and getting vaccinated. Um, and that message has to get out. And I think most people have done their part. Most people have sought the vaccine. A small percentage have decided for their own reasons not to get it. Many don't understand the vaccine or haven't been reached out in their own language to get it. Um, but at the same time, the more people we get vaccinated, the better. 
I read yesterday where we were always going to experience a fourth wave. They just hoped it would come much slower so that we could start building up community immunity. But as it has built up so quickly in the last while, we are at risk of overrunning the health services. Right. And you talk about those 14 people in ICU in Drogheda at the moment. Uh, we're looking at the prospect of between 200 and 450 people, it would seem, in ICU in December. I think the Taoiseach uh, was saying yesterday that uh, we have uh, the capacity for around 350 patients in ICU when you take into account surge capacity and so on. Uh, are we doing enough? Uh, I mean, it, it, has it been this bad before? Uh, and I ask you that for, for the sake of wondering, should we be going into lockdown in that we've gone into lockdown so many times in the past, but now there seems to be freedom of movement? We're, we're as bad as we've been in January of this year, which is the worst that we were. So there's as many cases at the moment as there were then. The difficulty we have is that these are in younger people. It's not in people who have a pre-existing condition, although a number of people with pre-existing condition are in hospital. It's more younger people with no conditions, no previous medical They're the ones who are sick. Uh, and that's the message that's striking home, is that uh, that's where we're running into difficulty. Children getting it a lot more than they were because of schools and their their pods being smaller, but children have to be allowed to play. I mean, the 20 months later on and being isolated is not a great way to grow up as a child in Ireland, which is generally a free country, you know. Mm. So from that point of view, it is a difficulty that we're facing. Right now, I think it's probably the most scary time that I've spent in practice because it's all around us in Drada. It's everywhere. Mm. One in 40 um, uh, that we know about. Uh, it could be a lot higher than that uh, because there's a lot of people going around with COVID that don't know it. They don't know they have it themselves. And I, I, I genuinely don't believe most people are ignoring the symptoms. They're mm. just hoping that they don't have it. But one in 40. But the reality is each one of us is going to know somebody who died from COVID fairly soon if it keeps going at this rate. Do you believe that? Not. Do you believe that we will all end up getting COVID? I got COVID very early on and and it it wasn't a very pleasant illness. I lost two weeks of not being very well and I still fear it. Um, I think we will all end up with COVID, yes. Mm. I I hope to a milder degree. Mm. Were you disappointed with yourself that you got COVID? I got COVID from stopping at a roadside cardiac arrest and I didn't take adequate precautions. Right. I don't regret it, put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is impossible at times. I mean, there are certain things that we have to do and uh, if you're treating a dying patient, uh, you can hardly blame yourself and there will be other circumstances and this thing is so virulent at the moment uh, and I, I take it that that's why uh, there's such an emphasis on advising people to get vaccinated if they can and that would include people who are partially vaccinated or who are due to get their booster vaccines. Correct, yes. Yes. Um, and I mean, there are waits, there are delays, um, but we're trying to get the vaccines out as quick as we can and run busy surgeries, which is also a difficulty because you can't cancel surgeries to run the boosters. Um, so a lot of surgeries are opening on Saturdays to give the boosters to their patients. And we'd ask people to be patient with the HSE. They are calling people one by one, especially in the 60 to 70 category um, and the younger age groups, 50 on and those with serious medical conditions in category four and category seven, they will be called by their GP if they're participating. And if not, the HSE will contact them and call them in. Okay, Professor O'Neill, thank you indeed for speaking to us this morning. Take care. Professor Dara O'Neill is a GP at the Clan Medical Practice in Drogheda. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. The AA started recording the average price of petrol and diesel some 30 years ago and since 1991 uh, prices have never been more expensive. They're at a record high according to the AA. Paddy Common is Head of Communications with AA Ireland and a very good morning to you Paddy and thanks indeed for joining us. Uh, There's going to be a big protest which will bring Dublin to a standstill today over fuel prices. How bad are they? Well, look, I mean, I, I suppose your intro really explained it perfectly that they, since we've been uh, collating the, the fuel prices, which goes back to, you know, 1991, we haven't seen them as high. Now, obviously, you can you could adjust for inflation and the like, but uh, the last time we saw uh, saw them up to this level was, was 2012. But um, we are really seeing now uh, this getting to incredibly worrying levels because... For the average motorist to fill a 60-litre tank, which might be about average, you're looking at now over 100, 100 euro to fill a, a tank of petrol. And, um, you know, I suppose our major concern is just the affordability of this for people, Michael, because mm. the government are saying, OK, we want people in electric vehicles and that's all great if you have the 30 grand, which is uh, the pretty much the cheapest it'll be to get a a new one, there's not a whole amount of used ones around. But for the average motorist driving around loud or mead this morning, mm. who need to get to work, who need to go to school, bring their kids to school, uh, if the public transport isn't there, and we know that it's not perfect, and we know also at the moment people aren't uh, really that keen on being on public transport, especially you know around Drogheda, we have the uh, one of the highest incidents of, of COVID at the moment. Uh, people have to use their cars. Mm. So if um, if they yeah. have to use their cars, they are being punished from what we can see. And it's a um, significant increase because that €100 euro would have compared to, what, about 60 or €70 euro a year ago uh, with prices increasing in around 30% in the last year, 27% in the last year for petrol and 28% yeah. for diesel. Yeah, and that, like, there's, there's a number of factors. Uh, I mean, obviously... During COVID, we saw almost record lows because the demand wasn't there. People weren't travelling. People weren't using fuel. Production uh, plummeted. So the price of a barrel of oil absolutely fell through the floor. Now, the production just hasn't ramped up enough since then. And the OPEC countries are hesitant. Uh, The oil producing countries are hesitant at the moment because they feel that there might be another... Uh, might be further restrictions so they're not producing fuel to the level that they mm. need to, to do so. Now uh, Joe, Joe Biden in the United States has waded in and, and we saw last night that the US are um, going to dip into their own reserves and are calling on countries like China, India, South Korea, Japan, Britain to do the same but they're also going to push the OPEC countries to produce again but, but look Michael the thing is here you know in Ireland it's two thirds of the price of the fuel that you put into your tank is tax Mm. and that can't be ignored and you know something has to give at some stage because you know we're all trying to do our bit um, but there comes a point where uh, you know it just becomes unsustainable for people to to exist and and, you know we're we're getting close to that there's anger out there you can see today that there are truckers um, you know, have set off from various routes, including routes around our own counties, uh, heading towards Leinster House to try and bring the city centre to a standstill to protest over the uh, levels of, of of pricing, which 
which look is affecting normal people. It's it's all very you know the <clears throat> wealthier people now are able to go out and buy you know plug in hybrid vehicles yep. or, or or Teslas. But it's the average motorist who's getting hit now, Michael. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I suppose, uh, where it seems ironic uh, to people. If you think uh, you, you were just about making the cost uh, of uh, filling up at 60 or 70 euro uh, and 100 euro is too much, uh, you're being told, well, buy an electric car. Uh, but if you can't buy an electric car, you're just paying more for the petrol or the diesel, as the case may be, uh, and there's no way out of it. And we know that these prices are going up because we saw in the last budget that this, you know, the carbon tax increased by 750 um, in the last budget. But they've also said that it's going up by the same amount in every budget until the year 2029. So that's that's potentially now, obviously, being conservative, that's potentially another 15 euro onto the tank, mm. this tank of, of petrol or diesel that we're talking about by 2029. Um, so... That's that's a huge amount just to just to get around, uh, and you know. But will it encourage people to walk or take the bus instead? I, you know, I I, I often think that, that you know people would love to do this, but there are practicalities. Like it's not a particularly nice day today out there, and uh, if you have to bring three children to school, uh, you know, walking isn't really a, an option, and cycling is can be dangerous. Um, I think it's down to practicality. No one likes sitting in traffic, not unless you know there's something wrong with them. But the, the you know, so most people only drive if it's the only real, really viable option. Mm. I know, for, I know, for for me, I like public transport. I, I like to do it, but it's not. It's it, you know, the options aren't always there, or it's expensive. Mm. So unless the alter- proper alternatives come in, I, I think that people are going to be forced still to use their cars in certain certain areas. But and, is, and that, said, is that just sorry. a habit? Uh, and is it possible that it's just a, a bad habit? Uh, because it's not that long ago where there was only one car in a house, if there was a car in a house, and maybe there was only one car uh, in every five houses on a street. Oh, I, I agree. I, I mean, we, you know, I grew up in that sort of environment and I walked to school and, uh, and boy, you have to question, is it safe? Now, for 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 kids to be walking to school, I don't think it's it's so much that society is more dangerous, but you know, traffic conditions can be a little bit more dangerous. Cycling isn't what it used to be. The volumes of cars are very different to when I was a kid growing up in in William Street and Drogheda. You know, it, it you used to be able to play football in the street. Now, mm. now at that street is a is is a is a busy thoroughfare. So mm. things have changed. Um, I don't see people rolling back on. Um, cars until they get a, a viable alternative and for me for now now the intentions are good from the government on on bringing these in but uh, for now I think it's more so in rural areas as well that just really aren't the alternatives if you live in Dublin city yeah. centre you have Lewis's and tra- and Darts etc but um, if you're if you're living in in various areas of, of, of Loud or Mead or, or Monaghan or Cavan there just aren't the other options available to you mm, well Plenty of people listening to you this morning, Paddy, uh, who know that that's uh, the truth. And uh, even if they just want to do their shopping, they need to get in the car. And that's uh, for something as simple as getting uh, a carton of milk, or let alone the gro- weekly grocery shopping. Uh, but there's no end to this in sight uh, as things stand. Uh, there's efforts uh, being taken, uh, as you say. Uh, but as things stand, this could actually get worse. And there's the prospect of it continuing through all of next year, is there? Well, well, there is no end in sight, given that the, the government have already flagged that they intend to increase carbon tax each year in the budget. It is down to them now to 
to ease the pressure. And, and there are there is precedents around Europe. You know, some other countries, like Hungary, I, I, I read yesterday, are are putting a temporary cap on the price of of petrol and diesel. Um, but you know, there's there's anger out there, and and you know, as as a nation, we're probably not great at at, um, at voicing our disdain about things. But this is getting to a point where. Um, you know, it, it is an issue for people. It, it's it, there is an, an uh, it's unfair for people because given the uh, the small percentage of electric vehicles available, if nothing else, even if everyone had the money for them, we couldn't all convert to them tomorrow because there's just not enough of them. Um, but I, I just think that something needs to be done. Something needs to be looked at just to release relieve the pressure because if the if the public transport network was perfect they would have a viable argument but it's not perfect yet mm. and you know when, once we get to that level which hopefully we will do and we in the AA would always encourage people to use public transport when they can um, but at the moment people just don't have the alternatives Have you a position in the AA on this protest uh, this form of protest uh, which will eventually, or, uh, essentially disrupt uh, life for so many people this morning? We would always uh, you know we would always acknowledge the right of, of people to protest mm. You know, obviously, we would hope that it's peaceful. We would hope that it doesn't disrupt emergency services um, as they tend to get get about. I know it's not an official protest. The Irish Haulage uh, Association are, you know, are distancing themselves from this. It seems to be a, a, an almost you know, an offshoot from that. But but look, it, at the end of the day, this uh, this issue has to be addressed. And, and you know, we 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 are calling on the government to look at it. Uh, we have to respect the rights of of any individual. In, in a free in a free society to, to protest their their disdain for this. Okay, well, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, the price of petrol now at uh, 172.6 diesel at 163.3 an increase of 27 and 28% over the course of uh, the last year and our thanks to Paddy Common who's Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the HSE says uh, that uh, there are over 1,300 people, 1,320 people, in fact, who are under the age of 65 who are resident in nursing homes. Uh, That's uh, the latest data from the 30th of June last year. The Ombudsman has published a report, Wasted Lives, and uh, the group... Acquired Brain Injury Ireland is calling for ways to be found to help people to live independently at home and outside of nursing homes. Barbara O'Connell is the CEO of Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Barbara, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. That's an awful lot of young people in nursing homes. And I take it uh, that some of them don't need to be in nursing homes and don't need that high level of care. No, exactly. And I think that's the stark findings of the Ombudsman report. So, and I mean, it's very aptly titled Wasted Lives. So many of them are there. Some do need 24-hour care, um, but many of them just need support or nursing care. Or for some, they're just there because their houses aren't accessible. You know, they may need a wheelchair and they may not be able to get home because their houses um, are not accessible but I think the tragedy happens when they don't have a choice and that this is the only choice for them that is to live in a nursing home. And unfortunately, once that choice is made, it's not reviewed. So there are many people who that's not their chosen mm. place to reside, that, um, but that's where they end up. That yeah. they're placed into nursing homes and forgotten about. Yes, 
fundamentally, and this is what this proves. I mean, I suppose as an organisation acquired by Injury Ireland, that's, this is what we've been doing for the last 20 years, is getting people out of nursing homes. 60% of the people that we would have in our residential community services are coming out of nursing homes. So this is kind of, I suppose, where we're trying to say, look, there is another alternative. We can we can prove and show that these people can live a very meaningful and quality life um, outside of a nursing home. I mean, it's fundamentally... It's a right, human rights issue, Michael, I think, mm. at this stage. Because if you had a young person, um, you know, it's not appropriate for them to be with older people, first of all. Um, they need to live their own lives, make their own decisions. It's lonely because for one person, he said to me, he said, Barbara, I have no problem living with older people. He said, but they don't remember my name. I have to introduce myself every day. Mm. It's very difficult for me. It's very lonely. Mm. Um you know, the ability to make decisions, like even to go out to the shop and get your own shampoo, any cho- cho- things you choose to do, um, you can't do that without sort of a major support. I mean, nursing homes aren't set up for that. They're, they're wonderful places for people who need them, you know, uh, where they're getting more and more frail or maybe at their end of life. Mm. Um, but for these people, they have their lives ahead of them. For, so, for some, it could be 50, 60 years ahead, you know. A place is very expensive in a nursing home, which is uh, the ironic part of all of this, I think. Yes. And um, I suppose in Acquired Brain Journal, what we're saying is, look, invest in somebody. They've had their rehab. Most have had rehab. Um, let's use it, let's maximise it and put costs in at the beginning and then they're not needed because what it does is it means that they're taking more power over their own lives. Their carers don't need to put in as much input. You know, they're less dependent and so therefore they cost, you know, if you're going to be down to brass tax and money, it costs mm. an awful lot less and it frees up a place for somebody who really needs it. Mm. Uh, and there's you know? plenty of people uh, who would uh, like to get a, a place in a nursing home as well and it's not always possible. Yeah. But, no, but, no. but, but I, is it possible to bring ho- people home? Uh, there, there's a shortage of carers as well because quite often uh, people will need uh, some level of help, won't they? Yeah. Yes, and that, that is a challenge. Um, but I don't think that should be a limiting factor for people's human rights. You know, we can't be saying, sorry, you have to stay there because we can't get ourselves together to get you out. I think that, you know, that's got to be fundamentally that it's not the first choice. And right now, I suppose what we're finding is the government are saying, yeah, we hear the problem. The HSE, they're stuck because they don't have the funding attached. They have nursing home funding, but they don't have funding in disability to help get people out. So there needs to be, I suppose what we're calling for is action. You know, get it moving. Um, You know, get those people out of there. Um, because it is a, it is a scandal and it will be a scandal when it, when you know as the years go on and we see how many people are stuck in there that shouldn't be there. Mm. Um, I I, I it, yeah. It, if you had a young person, nineteen or twenty, and those would be the age groups that we're talking about yeah. all the way up. Oh my God. Um, many would be and a mean loud would be kind of the same. Many road traffic accidents because there, there is a high incidence of road traffic accidents, and you tend to hear about the people who've died, but you don't hear about the people who've been injured mm. or seriously injured. Mm. Um, and so it'll be like you, Michael. Today you're there, you're on your radio show, but tomorrow, you know, there for the grace of God, go you or yeah, I, I know. be that yeah. person. And I would like to be given a chance to live my life. Um, you know, and do the things I want to do and make the choices, have my mates in, you mm. know, be able to pursue my hobbies, things yeah. like that. 
that you mm. can't because that's not what a nursing home is set up for, you know. Yeah, there can be life-changing accidents uh, which result in yeah. brain injury, uh, but it, it doesn't mean it's the end of someone's life, uh, oh. nor does it mean uh, that they need nursing home care, which uh, to some extent for somebody in that position is a, a little bit like incarcerating them um, where all of yeah. the decisions that you can take uh, if you're living independently are removed from you down to what you're going to have for your tea. Yes, exactly. And even, I suppose, from our point of view, what what um, Acquire Range Ireland do is, you know, help people do everything from making a cup of tea for yourself, mm. you know, to dressing, washing, all those kind of things that empower you as a person. But in the nursing home setting, you, you can't have access to a kitchen because of health and safety reasons. So you, you can't make your own tea or your own coffee or any of those kind of things or make any of those kind of choices, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose... If I could give you an example of somebody that we actually took out of a nursing home after eight years. Yeah. He stayed in one of our residences for a year and he's now living on his own and he's going to college. Right. So we have numbers of examples of people. If you give them the right support and the right understanding, and I suppose we would provide a specialist support mm. rehab service for people with brain injury. So we would understand them um, in a way maybe others mightn't. And then you're giving them a, a chance of rehab. That's what happens. So 50% of our residential people have moved back into their own homes. Mm. So they're not, you know, so the potential to empower people to live a meaningful life is huge. And I suppose we have the research to to back that up. And I think the first thing you said uh, was that uh, some people will need around-the-clock care uh, and it won't be suitable for them to move out. But obviously there's plenty who can move out, like uh, that young person that you just spoke about a a moment ago. And you've been helping people to do that over the course of the last 21 years and will continue to do that uh, if people want uh, to make contact with you, I gather. Yeah, we have two um, uh, case managers in the Live Mead area that work uh, closely with the HSE on their disability team. So, you know, what, we, what I'd be saying to people is don't take it as the first option. You know, um, we've got to get this mobilised. So I'd be saying to people, you know, look for the other option. It may be acquired brain insurance, it may be not, but it's that the nursing home is not the first port of call just mm. because um, that's what that you're being told is available. Um because it's not right um, and we really have to start getting getting people out of there and preventing people going in. Very good. You know? All right, yeah. Barbara, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for I joining really us I really appreciate morning. the opportunity to talk to you, Michael. Thank you. Oh God, any time. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That's uh, Barbara O'Connell, uh, who's CEO of Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us this morning. Dermot is in Dundalk and he was on the phone to us and he says... Who'd want to be a Garda today? Dermot says, I certainly wouldn't want to be with uh, the abuse that they're so frequently subjected to. There isn't the same respect anymore, but at the same time, Gardaí cannot be a law unto themselves. Uh, They have to be held accountable and be open to investigation the same way as any other citizen. Thanks uh, for that, Dermot. Uh, The cost of fuel prompted Sean to call us. He says, it's crazy, absolutely crazy. I drive to and from work and it's now a huge chunk out of my wages. I don't have any choice as I need to have a car for work. Thank you, Sean. Um, I think I'd only annoy you if I said to you, get an electric car. Uh, a listener phoned in to compliment all of the Drogheda traders and uh, the team for organising, putting up the beautiful Christmas lights in uh, the town. Everybody's talking about them and praising them, especially on Stockwell Street. It's credit to all in the town. People are very quick to knock when something is wrong, so it's nice to give credit when it's due. 
thank you indeed uh, for doing that through our programme. Grania Andrades says, I think if everyone makes a conscious effort to reduce the amount of people they're in contact with in the coming days and weeks, we could see a drop in the number of infections. We all have our part to play in all of this. We can't just blame the government for everything. Thanks, Grania. That's certainly uh, the message from government and NEFIT and all of uh, the doctors and medics uh, who are dealing with this on the front line. That's what they're asking us all to do. Cathy is in Drogheda and she says, why are people from Drogheda having to travel to Dundalk for their boosters if the rates are so high? I'm supposed to go tomorrow afternoon and I'm trying to see if I can get a bus. I think it is ridiculous that I have to travel to Dundalk. doesn't make any sense to me. Surely we can have one in Drogheda too and not be sending our mature citizens all over the place. Thanks, Cathy. Stay with us. Uh, We'll have uh, more talk uh, on that particular subject uh, in the next few minutes. Uh, But as I say, stay with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, just going back uh, to that uh, comment uh, from Cathy, uh, who is trying to get a, a bus to Dundalk uh, tomorrow to get her, her booster. She's wondering why she can't get it in Drogheda and says it's ridiculous. I, I think uh, Labour's Jed Nash would uh, agree. You've been asking exactly the same question, Jed Nash. I have, and not, not just this week or last week, but um, over the last few months, uh, we know how difficult it was to persuade the HSE and the Minister for Health to uh, locate a community vaccination centre here in Drogheda in, in Diffie um, when the National Community Vaccination Programme was being uh, rolled out. Uh, I've made the case again uh, to the HSE um, in the region. Um, I've made it to the HSE nationally. Uh, and today in the Dáil, I hope to make the case to the Minister for Health directly to establish a community vaccination uh, centre in Drogheda and indeed a testing centre. We know, Michael, uh, only too well uh, that uh, not for the first time uh, Drogheda features at the top of the charts in terms of high incidence rates of uh, COVID-19. And we know from figures that were presented to us in a briefing I requested with um, public health experts from the HSE uh, on the um, 2nd of November uh, that vaccination rates actually in the uh, Louth area are lower Uh, than the national average and that may very well be contributing to uh, high rates of infection in the area at the moment and that's not the only reason there are a multiplicity of reasons um, for that but one would imagine that uh, where there has been a history um, during the course of this pandemic of high rates of infection and where vaccine take-up is lower than the national average that the state's resources would be focused on providing Um, a vaccination centre in the area that is most adversely affected and you would think as well uh, that all of the evidence would suggest and logic would suggest that a testing centre would be provided in the area. Now I deal day in day out Michael with people who don't have their own transport who find it difficult to get to RD and are actually embarrassed in fact as one person said to me last week that they had to rely on the National Ambulance Service, the great paramedics mm-hmm. who serve us so well, to come around and swab them uh, when, th- in their own view... But you're, uh, you're, all, you're, always, you're always going to hear stories like that, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> maybe coming from a different direction to a different destination. It's just uh, par for the course that people will have to travel to one destination from one part of the country to wherever uh, these services are being rolled out. The problem seems to be staffing, though, is it? Well, the HSE, in their response to me, um, and the HSE staff locally and and regionally are continually making the case for more resources for this area. Um, Nationally, there is an issue in relation to, you know, obtaining um, sufficient nursing staff and 
pharmacy staff as well, pharmacists, qualified pharmacists, to staff uh, the um, vaccination centres. Uh, and that is an issue <clears throat> right across the country. Um, and I constantly argue at national level, as an opposition TD, uh, for more resources for this area. And this area does need more resources because this is not a narrow Mm. parochial point that I'm making Michael the evidence is there you're discussing it day in day out mm. the programme and the fear in the community is very very real I know but um, the pressure is unreal uh, I mean they carried out 207,000 PCR tests last week and it's the same type of people uh, who are carrying out the tests uh, that would be uh, uh, giving the vaccinations. Uh, I mean, there's an incredible amount of pressure on the health service at the moment. There, there absolutely is, and, and everybody accepts that and understands that, and our health service staff are working mm. in incredibly mm. uh, challenging circumstances. But, but I would say this, you know, the HSE nationally needs to have the agility to be able to focus the resources where the resources are needed most and mm. when they are needed most in particular areas. Mm. And that clearly isn't the case in the context of of I mean, if you look at the figures, and I sent them to to you yesterday evening. Um, the HSE released these figures to me yesterday evening uh, on full of parliamentary questions and emails that I sent to them last week in order to thank them for mm. the information because it's very very important. They, they have to date this month in Louds swabbed twelve and a half thousand. Uh, individuals. Now compare that to January and we all remember where we were last January uh, when the virus was so virulent and people were literally dying every day in this area Uh, because of this virus they were swabbing 8,148. So they will far exceed um, the the, 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 um, Mm. highest rate recorded um, over the last two years uh, even before this month ends. So there's no question that the HSE and the staff are working really, really hard. Mm-hmm. But the issue here appears to be at national level, a difficulty in you know targeting the resources where they're needed at most at a given moment in time. There is still no pop-up mm-hmm. centre in the Drogheda area. Yeah. I've had schools on... And I'm not arguing the point with you. I don't think anybody would argue the point with you. I mean, ideally, that would be the situation. But going back to the idea of a bus, if you weren't getting a bus from Drogheda to Dundalk, somebody would be getting a bus from Dundalk to Drogheda. Uh, it doesn't seem as though the resource is there to have both. No, and, and I, I know that resources are finite. Uh, and I would never say that, look, we should simply have a testing centre or a vaccination centre in every urban area. That's just simply not possible. My point is this. Um, my point is this, Michael, and it's a very clear one. All of the evidence shows that Drada has, over the last um, 18 months, figured um, pretty consistently uh, in areas that are most adversely affected yeah. Uh, by this um, infection. There are difficulties that people, for example, who, who are on low incomes and people who don't have transport have accessing uh, testing sites uh, elsewhere. And when the virus is so virulent and so transmissible, the HSE at national level needs to be much more flexible and agile in terms of focusing those resources where they are needed. There is so much that people can do in terms of you know, minimising their, their, their contacts, working from home, doing all of the things that... I would encourage always people to do. Uh, but there is an onus now, I think, on, on the authorities at national level and the Department of Health to take a very, very close look at this and, and, and reconsider the infrastructure that's applied uh, to County Loud for at least for a period of time. I mean, I had asked the HSE a number of weeks ago, but the thresholds that they apply to establishing you know, a pop-up centre in an area, I asked this question at national level. Nobody could answer that question. Mm. It seems to me to be resource dependent. We have had pop-up centres in this area at times when the virus was less active. Right. Um, do you think that... Do you think that... At the moment. Do you think that uh, the reason, or one of the reasons, uh, the problem 
is worst in the country, in Drogheda Urban, is because of those in uh, the 50 to 60 age group? Um, I had heard that put to me. Um, because, because of the, because of the Janssen vaccine. Janssen, yeah. absolutely. Now, we know that uh, they were way behind, months behind, uh, with uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. And as a result, uh, that cohort got the Janssen vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and believed that they were fully vaccinated. Now it seems as though we are actually talking about what is the yellow pack of the four vaccines. Uh, The American Centre for Disease Centre says that after two months, uh, the vaccine has waned. Uh, I think the European version says three months. So you're talking about people who would have got this, uh, if I recall, probably last April, uh, who have no... vaccine protection at this stage. They're pretty much unvaccinated and believe that they are vaccinated. Uh, and you'd wonder if that is part of it. Um, I'm not qualified enough to say that. I'm not a public health expert or a virologist and neither are you, but I, I read no. the same information that you do. Um, but it is interesting that the HSE is saying that they will, won't be vaccinating that cohort now until the end of the year. Even though, and I have read um, uh, excerpts, at least from medical journals, that would suggest that those who had the Johnson and Johnson jab uh, can um, get the booster vaccination, an mRNA vaccination, sooner than was originally uh, envisaged. And this is the point that I'm making mm. as well, Mike. Well, they, they're, they're, they, they have given the green light for it to happen three months after receiving that jab, but right. here we are, uh, and now we're being told it's not going to happen until the end of the year. Well, exactly, and and, and this is and I, I said it in it all, uh, as is Alan Kelly and others, that Noyak um, seemed to work uh, on their own terms. Um, I was looking uh, over the last few days at the way in which the booster vaccination programme has worked in the UK, and I've spoken to friends of mine in the UK who are of a similar age to me. They've already, some of them, received their booster um, vaccinations. Noyak seemed to work on their own terms. It's as if there isn't a national emergency. And we have... Um, you know, an excessive supply of mRNA vaccinations. I mean, you know, we had said ourselves, Alan Kelly said it in the doll a couple of weeks ago, you know, so, so significant are our reserves that if it was at all possible, we should be able to share and redistribute some of those excess vaccinations to other countries. Conditions-wise, that may not be possible, but we actually have the supply that's there. It's waiting to be used. Is we there... had the infrastructure here when the initial mm. you know, vaccination problem was rolled out, and there doesn't seem to be the same urgency in terms of the vaccination. Isn't there a risk that people are being given a, a, a false sense of security? That they believe they're vaccinated and they're not. And that they have COVID certs and they're allowed to go into pubs and restaurants and whatever, uh, when in fact they're not vaccinated. Yeah, well, I'm not going to speculate. But there that. is a risk of that. Would that be of concern to you? Um, look, I, I'm, I'm concerned when the things that government ought to be doing when they're not doing them. Um, you know, they're pleading with us uh, and appealing with us to you know, change our behaviour and that's exactly what we should do in the middle of a, 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 cr- a crisis like this. Um, but people are looking askance at government and saying, well, why aren't you rolling out the booster programme with the same urgency we, we rolled out the very successful first phase of the implementation of, of the plan? You know, why aren't you taking control of the situation in schools? Why are schools still waiting for antigen tests? You know, why are we waiting for all of these basic pieces of infrastructure to be rolled out to protect us? Um, and you could include in that the rollout of vaccination programme. I mean, there are people as well in the AstraZeneca group, people over 60s, who are still waiting, very, very anxious, um, who, who are on to me, onto my office uh, explaining uh, their concerns to me. It, there doesn't seem to be any urgency. I mean, 
we all remember we get the text messages, you know, mm. we get the information you know, when we were due to get our vaccinations. People are still waiting. There's no sense of any urgency or a national campaign uh, around this in the way that there was for the first phase of the um, vaccination programme. Michael, and that, that is really, really concerning. Okay. We leave it there for the moment, but thank you, as always, uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Labour Party TD for Louth and East Mead, Jed Nash. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, get the full picture is a campaign which hopes to highlight how much trafficking for sexual exploitation is going on in this country. It was launched yesterday by Ruama, the group that works with women impacted by prostitution and sex trafficking. Its policy and communications manager is Amy Minner. Good morning to you, Amy, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. How much human trafficking is going on for sexual exploitation. Good morning, Michael. I suppose for our part, and we're only one service, but we worked with 129 victims of human trafficking last year, and we participated in in research earlier this year that would suggest that um, the overall picture of of human trafficking is underestimated by about 38% in this country. Right. Um, Is uh, there a typical uh, story that uh, you can tell about people who have found themselves in this situation? I suppose the, the unfortunate nature of, of human trafficking is that the, the, the commonality really that you experience through human trafficking is is a, a removal of, of self-determination for an, an individual. So you wouldn't necessarily have what you would call a, a typical story, but I suppose there would be some typical um, signs of human trafficking um, that people could look out for in their communities. So let's say, for example, a really common feature of the, the, the sex trade more generally is this idea of touring. So, um, for example, there might be somewhere in your locality where you seem to have uh, new neighbours every, every couple of weeks and you can't, you can't quite get a grip, let's say, on, on, on who exactly is living in a location. Um, maybe the people who are, who are coming and going, you know, they don't seem quite aware exactly of, of where they are or they're a little bit vague about their financial situation. Or if you do maybe get to speak to somebody, they might suggest maybe that they seem to owe a debt to somebody, but they're not quite sure exactly where that debt came from. Mm. They might display some kind of outward appearances of being um, dishevelled maybe or kind of injured in some way. So while the, the stories maybe wouldn't be common, you would have a certain amount of commonality when it comes to the signs of human trafficking. Right. What did you say? Touring. Uh, I mean, that is essentially men, pimps, uh, moving women uh, from one apartment or one flat to another in different parts of the country, is it? Mm. So, let's say, so when you're looking let's say, at some of the, the figures for um, women who are being advertised every day, so today, for example, I looked on one of the main websites this morning and there are approximately 900 women being advertised today. About maybe half of those are being advertised in, in the northeast today. Now, you have a certain concentration, obviously, in, in Dublin as a capital city, but, mm. I mean, those are huge numbers. And so what, what you would have, let's say, if you monitor some of these sites from day to day, is that you'll find that the figures from county to county will vary from day to day. Mm. And generally speaking, you could attribute that to the likes of touring. So people will be moved from place to place, not only to satisfy the demand in each place, but also it's a tool. I mean, we know that the sex trade is highly linked with um, organised crime. So it's also a tool then for the kind of um, evasion of, of authorities as well. Right. So this is forced prostitution though. Uh, if uh, you were to respond to one of those ads, uh, would you know when you met one of uh, the women that they were being forced into prostitution? Sorry, Michael, could you repeat the question please? I mean, is it obvious when you meet these women uh, that they've been forced into prostitution? 
for an, an individual, is it, yeah. or for a frontline mm-hmm. service? Yes. Yeah. So for an individual, I suppose, uh, generally speaking, I mean, yes, I suppose the, the, the whole point of human trafficking is that you have this this removal of agency, removal of self determination. So you would be talking about being forced into selling sexual services. Yes. Mm. I know, but for the men who go to prostitutes, would they know that uh, the women had been forced into prostitution? I suppose I, you'd have to ask the, the sex buyers that. Unfortunately, I suppose mm. I wouldn't necessarily be able to speak to that as a, as a frontline service provider. But um, but I suppose in in some cases, I suppose there is some research that's been conducted by um, uh, SERP in UCD that would suggest that from some of the commentary on some of these websites, some of the feedback that are provided by punters afterwards, that while it might not be very clear to them that somebody has been, let's say, tra- trafficked or forced as such, but there are signs that say some people might say that the person that was advertised online wasn't the person that they met or the individual that they met, you know, didn't seem quite clear exactly as to where they were or maybe they didn't have English or they had mm. been advertised online as providing particular particular types of services that the, the individual that they met, let's say, wasn't um, aware that they were advertised as, as being, um, as advertised as, as providing. And then that, that would be a suggestion, I suppose, in, indirectly that, um, that there's another individual involved or that the prostitution would be forced. Mm. Uh, maybe they're not interested or, or don't care or something like that. Uh, I mean, I suppose a, a lot of this is uh, very alien to most of us uh, who wouldn't mm-hmm. have any understanding or, or, or knowledge uh, of uh, the sex trade. Uh, but uh, it's a, a, an odd thing in itself for men to pay for sex. And quite often they're married or have partners. Absolutely, yeah. So I suppose the... The idea, I suppose, that we're we're going with for the campaign is really about raising public awareness, not only about human trafficking, but another key part of that is the idea of that the, the demand for the purchase of sexual services is is one of the drivers of of the sex trade and, and of the trade of, of human trafficking for sexual exploitation in this country. And I suppose while it's, it's not to suggest that let's say every individual that's being advertised online is has been trafficked or has been forced into prostitution. But what's really important to, to really understand there is that the same, unfortunately, as, as any market, that, you know, th- there has to be a demand in order to provide, um, there has to be a demand for sexual services in order to have a demand for human beings to provide the sexual services. Um, and we also know, I suppose, that given the highly criminalised nature of the sex trade in Ireland, that when it comes to, to providing those sexual services, that there really aren't any scruples associated with, you know, trafficking somebody into the country to meet that demand in order to, to provide, to make money, essentially. Mm. It's a, a dreadful industry, and it is an industry, and that's the point, isn't it? Uh, it's a big money spinner for these uh, pimps and uh, people who traffic other human beings. Absolutely. The, the global trafficking industry is, is a multi-billion dollar industry, and we know from our frontline experience, we know from feedback that we have from service users, we know from other frontline services as well, that it's, it's a, the sex trade in Ireland is absolutely highly criminalised. Um, there are two specialist units within our Garda Siakona who deal with these matters, um, the Organised Prostitution Investigation Unit and also the Anti-Human Trafficking Unit. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's an offence now to buy sex as well. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, the, the, the 2017 um, Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act came in. Um, so it's now uh, it's now a, a crime to purchase sex. However, um, the, the sellers of sex are completely decriminalised. Okay. 
All right, Amy, we leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Amy Miller, Policy and Communications Manager with Ruama. Now, Stephen Andrata has been in touch. He's uh, been texting us on WhatsApp. He says, my sister and her partner are fully vaccinated and they still got a touch of COVID. Doesn't matter how careful you are. Stephen is annoyed about those who are not being responsible by not wearing masks and he thinks more should be done to make them wear masks and do all of the other things. Uh, And I think it's a, a question of luck to some degree, uh, Stephen, if you get COVID, uh, they say if you're vaccinated, you're going to be less ill than you would have been otherwise. Uh, but if there is a breakthrough infection, it can be very, very serious as well. And I think uh, if uh, your relations did catch it, despite being vaccinated, uh, they can thank their lucky stars. Uh, David, uh, again, sending us that message on WhatsApp. Uh, David is furious about uh, this morning's trucker protest. He says his sister can't get into work and she is a doctor. His sister-in-law, his nephew are all on the front line in a hospital and they've all been impacted by the protest. The truckers should save their diesel and stay away from Dublin, he says. Thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to get in touch with us as well. Uh, Some text messages uh, that have uh, come to us. Siobhan has been in touch and she's travelling on a bus for a COVID test or she says travelling on a a bus for a COVID test doesn't seem like a a good idea. It's imperative that facilitating a test centre be set up in Drogheda immediately. Thanks uh, Siobhan uh, for that. Uh, There may have been some blurred lines there but I I think uh, what we're talking about at the moment is the booster vaccines uh, that uh, you have to travel uh, from Drogheda to Dundalk. uh, Dundalk being uh, the centre for the boosters. Uh, Somebody else uh, saying just after uh, listening uh, to Jed Nash complaining that people in their 60s are having to wait on their booster. Uh, he needs to get his facts right. Uh, you get the booster six months after your double AstraZeneca shot or in the sixth month. People who are now coming into that bracket uh, are being called for their boosters. Uh, I have heard a lot of people in their 60s uh, who have uh, been told uh, that uh, it's time for their booster. But you're, you're right, absolutely. If um, you have uh, received uh, the last boost, uh, the last jab uh, less than six months ago. You won't be called for your booster. Now, uh, thanks uh, to the man in Kells who was uh, in touch with us, 64 years of age uh, yesterday. He was out of hospital after three weeks. Uh, he had a suspected stroke and he was told by the hospital to be seen by a dentist as he gets cramps in his legs, which causes him to chew his jaws at night. Uh, and he's actually cutting his mouth as a result of this. Now, he says his teeth are so sharp that they need attention. He has a medical card, but he, he says uh, that none of the dentists in Kells are taking medical card patients. He's on disability benefit and he's all of his uh, bills as normal. Uh, and he's been told that the cost of his dental work will be in around €180, Euro, money that he just doesn't have. Uh, and he's wondering what is he supposed to do under such a circumstance. Fintan Hurrahan is uh, Chief Executive of uh, the Irish Dental Association and on the line and uh, a very good morning to you, Fintan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I'm sure you'll sympathise uh, with that man's particular situation, uh, but this is a, a problem uh, that a, a lot of people who have medical cards are having right across the country because a lot of dentists are having a lot of problems with the system, I think. Correct, and I'm, I'm truly sorry to hear of his uh, experiences. Unfortunately, it does reflect the fact that there are very few dentists left in the scheme. We know there's a particular problem in both Louth and Mead, and I have, you know, figures which show that there have been probably half of the dentists left in the scheme that were there 
even as recently as two or three years ago. So It could even be more than that. I see Fergus O'Dowd, a local Fine Gael TD, was asking questions in the Dáil about this, suggesting that two-thirds of the dentists have left the medical card scheme in Loudoun Mead since 2019. Well, absolutely, and I hope that the government finally wakes up to the problem. We are flabbergasted that, in spite of repeated calls and efforts on our part, the Department of Health seems to have no interest, and I would encourage Deputy O'Dowd and all of the TDs. We met with Deputy Nash just last week. We would encourage all of the TDs to raise their concerns and force the Department of Health to sit down to talk to us. In regards to the the, the patient, uh, Marie from your office was on yesterday. Uh, I made some calls to the HSE and they said that man on the basis of what little uh, facts I have and obviously don't have detailed information should be seen immediately by the HSE and they have said that if his details can be passed on that they'll arrange for him to be called today. Uh, but clearly, you know, that's because of what appears to be his, his, his medical condition, mm. not because he contacted uh, yourselves. But, you know, the, there is a real because it's a, Because it's an emergency situation, the HSE Public Dental Service uh, will provide a, a emergency treatment, I think. They will arrange to make, to make contact with him today and for him to be seen by a dentist. And that, that's what I've been told, based on... You know, the facts, uh, as you outlined them to mm. us. Um, but look, we, we can't be doing that uh, for, for everyone who has a medical or mental emergency. Um, the, the hospitals would ordinarily contact the HSE Dental Service. I don't know what happened here mm. in this case. But the reality is, of course, you know, he probably has a long-standing relationship with his own dentist. If his own dentist, and I don't know who it is, mm. has left the scheme, then clearly it's not an option for him unless he, he wants to be privately. Mm. And that's the, the problem is that there are lots of people who struggle to, to meet the cost of, of visiting their dentist. There yeah. is a scheme there, but because the scheme has been completely underfunded, it's completely unfit for purpose, dentists are leaving the scheme and nobody seems to be uh, prepared to do anything about it. And I'm sure you'd advocate regular checkups and that prevention is better than cure and that if uh, you don't have regular checkups, uh, then you could very well find yourself in an emergency situation. Uh, and maybe the uh, help will be there uh, through the public system for you in an emergency situation. Uh, but what do you do if you're a medical card patient and you can't afford regular checkups? Why is it, uh, to ask the same question a different way, why is it so many dentists are, are falling out of the system? Well, I, I think I spoke to you about this before. I think for many years they were frustrated uh, at the inadequacy of the scheme, which, which was a, a pale shadow of what was there up to about 10 years ago. They persisted with the scheme because they believed that eventually somebody would sit down and say, yes, let's look at doing something differently. Uh, I can assure you that they they continued with the scheme in, in hope rather than expectation. I, then when COVID came along, I think what was, uh, what was the final straw for many dentists was they said, we were promised PPE. We're probably the only health care professionals who were, who were provided with none and incur significant extra costs. We can't afford to continue with this scheme. So, you know, the Department of Health is well aware of this problem. They're well aware that there has been a mass exit from the scheme who don't hold private contracts. But to answer your question, patients should contact the local HSE dental service uh, who will assist them. It may mean uh, in the current climate, patients will have to travel 
much further than they would prefer or, mm. or would ordinarily travel. Uh, but the HSD has a responsibility to care for medically care patients. It uh, provides contracts to private dentists to, to, to provide that care. But if, if there aren't enough private dentists to do it, then it's going to fall back on the HSD. Yeah. And it's not set up to, 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 to deal with that that, that um Okay, and uh, the care that you give is your business uh, and has has to be viable as such. Uh, just going back uh, to that question uh, from Fergus O'Dowd, uh, the response to him from the Minister uh, indicates uh, that uh, there may be some change. He says, I've given a commitment to a substantive review of uh, the DTSS, uh, the scheme for dental patients uh, to, uh, with for medical card patients uh, to be seen by dentists, uh, he says, which will include fees paid to dentists. I've also acknowledged the immediate issues of concern with current arrangements under the scheme, and I instructed my officials to hold talks, as I'm sure you very well know, Fintan Huron, with the Irish Dental Association, uh, about these issues, uh, which were held in June, and further talks are uh, planned for the coming weeks, and that there's an additional €10 million euro of available through Budget 2022. Are, are you optimistic uh, that uh, there'll be a move in the right direction? Well, you know, I have to take that reply at face value. All I know is that there's nobody available to talk to us about it uh, since uh, that meeting in June. Uh, the £10 million that's been promised is going to make little difference because, you know, I looked at the figures before I came on and for the first 10 months of this year, Barely 30 million was spent on the dental scheme. In a normal year, that would be up around 60 million. So, you know, an extra 10 million is, is still going to leave the service way short. We actually need an entirely new scheme. If if has now been told that they are going to talk to us in the coming weeks, I really hope it happens because it's been promised and hasn't happened for, for months and if not years at this stage. Okay. Thanks for joining us and thanks very much, by the way, for uh, making those calls on behalf of our caller. And obviously, uh, we'll pass that on to him and uh, hopefully he'll get the treatment that it sounds he desperately needs. Uh, but thank you indeed for joining us as well. That's uh, Fintan Horan, who's Chief Executive of the Irish Dental Association. Now, let's go to Dr. Rachel Fraser from Fraser Dental in Kings Court. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, you wanted to offer your services to this caller anyway or anybody else uh, who's looking for dental care who has a medical card yes um, well as this man he's he's living in I'm sorry he's in Cows he's based yeah that's right in Cows yeah like we're not ourselves we're in King's Court and King's Court is probably about 20 minutes from him so like we have never said we won't treat medical card patients in our practice and I know we're the only one in the in the area. So right. look, if he wants to get in touch with us, we would be happy to see him. We are happy to see anybody, um, private or on the medical card, same day if, they're, if they have an emergency. So look, anybody in the cabin, Mead, Louth, Monaghan, border areas, um, Kings Court, uh, come to Kings Court and we'll happily treat them. It's just a very frustrating um, situation for us, though, in days with the actual contract itself. Um, it's just, you know, the, the services that we can provide are very limited um, to medical card patients at present because the contract is just so old and out of date. You know? And can you understand uh, why dentists are, are pulling out of the scheme? Sure, because, you know, as I, as Fintan said, like the PPE, um, for example, we're having to provide that all privately ourselves for the medical card patients. Um, we in our practice haven't put in any um, fee for PPE, for example, I know some some of the larger practices like Smiles, for example, you would pay a COVID PPE charge. Well, you know, we don't do that and medical card patients shouldn't have to pay that. So 
this has just forced a lot of dentists to pull out of the scheme. And we've been promised this PPE for the last year and a half, ever mm. since the start of the pandemic. So you can imagine also as well from the point of view of, of actual dentistry, like the service we can provide if you do come in, like we can only give you two fillings, for example, mm. or an extraction of your tooth, you know, and uh, that's a very frustrating position for us as dentists because we don't want to be pulling all your teeth out, for example. Um, but ultimately, that's what this contract is telling us to do. You know, the HSE are telling us to take people's teeth out if they're in pain. And uh, you know, that is not what we want to do as dentists, really. You know, we want to save teeth. We want to make people happy. And people don't really want just uh, extractions, you know. Mm, and that's, absolutely. Uh, that's the bottom line of it. It's so frustrating for us. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much uh, for uh, offering uh, to look after this man uh, and indeed contacting us uh, to yeah, make that offer. And, and I, if I, if I yeah. could, mm. just maybe just, if he did... For example, contact us now or for any of your listeners. Like if they get into us before Christmas, we can do a free checkup. We can give them two fillings this year. And maybe if they need another two fillings, we can do another two for them in January. Um, because, you know, the restrictions are so that we can only do two fillings per year. But we can give them unlimited extractions um, and a free checkup, as they say, and the two fillings per year. So look, okay. anyone with a medical card, do get in touch. But if you're under the age of 16, we can only treat. That's another frustration for, for dentists. The medical card contract, we can only treat people age 16 and over in our practice. So anyone with mm. a child with a dental pain on the medical card, they do have to still go to the HSE service um, and they'll probably be left waiting for that because there's very okay. few well, no spots too for that. I, I imagine some of our medical card patients listening to us uh, this morning will be interested and maybe making contact with you. <laughs> uh, so if we can help them out, we will do our best. Okay, so that's Fraser Dental in King's Court. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Rachel Fraser. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we should all be working from home if uh, we can, and uh, in time, uh, they reckon a hybrid model of working from home at times and in the office will be par for the course, uh, but it's falling out of favour with employers. Derek McKay is uh, the managing director of Adar Human Resource Management, and your latest. HR Barometer report uh, gives us some interesting insights into the views on this and uh, they've kind of been turned on their heads in the last short while, Derek. They certainly have, Michael. We've seen through most recent HR Barometer findings that uh, I suppose it has been a waning um, from an employer's perspective in relation to the the popularity around hybrid working or working from home. Um, And maybe that's uh, kind of part of the realisation um, as to organisations seeing how effective it is actually working uh, for the business and sometimes the additional workload it can create mm. trying to, to manage a remote workforce. Why, why, why are people turned off it? Uh, do you think it's uh, less productive? I think that that's probably one of the areas that hasn't yet really um, been measured effectively. I think employers, I think, have had to had a lot of stop-start over the last 18 months including even over the last week or so, where obviously the most recent announcement um, about, you know, unless uh, the workers uh, were essentially required to be in the, in the workplace, they're recommended to work from home. So I think there's an element that employers are looking to try and get more stability into their working practices um, and, and being able to, as well, have the staff working around them uh, in the traditional workplaces is what they've been used to um, up until the last 18 months or so. 
Okay, very good. Uh, we're very short in time today, Derek. I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, with just <laughs> very little uh, insight into the latest uh, ADAR Human Resource Management HR Parameter Report. Derek McKay, Managing Director of ADAR Human Resource Management. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on Element. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.